With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are former Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer and Law Enforcement Analyst Michael Fanone and revered New York Times essayist and columnist Thomas Etzel. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicsroarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Now, we'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the link to our sponsors, Lomi and Hold On Bags, in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, James, that Tennessee story uh, keeps getting worse. They were, they, Republican right-wing legislators expelled two blacks for protesting in the chamber floor over the refusal to enact gun control after three little children were killed 15 minutes away. Uh, there was another gun incident in Louisville where uh, five people were slain by a killer with an AR assault rifle. In, in Tennessee, the upshot is that the black legislators became national symbols and their localities are returning them to the legislature. Republicans, led by that House Speaker, who thanks to Judd Legum, we learned doesn't, he doesn't even live in the district. Uh, they became symbols of racist hypocrites. And, and it's a really good piece in Politico by a, a woman named Natalie Allison, who used to cover the Tennessee legislature. And she reported that this is the, this is the hypocrisy. Several years ago, they had no intention of expelling a Republican member accused of assaulting teenage girls. He even apologized to one. Uh, so I think this is a story that just I, it, it, it shows you exactly what they're all about. And I hope it's going to redound to the advantage of, 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 of those black legislators and blacks elsewhere. What do you think? Well, I, I tell you something that I think is, is uh, the, the two Justins, uh, Jones and Pearson, one's from Nashville and one, they're very smart, very articulate people. I mean, these are people of, 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 of considerable depth. That speaker looks like he, he was the kind of guy who got held back a couple of years and homeschooled. He's not a very smart guy. And when, and when you listen to the other ones, they're not very smart. And, and you know, at some point, I think people are going to see through this, that, that, that these are, are really lifelong slow learners. And the, the, what they do makes no sense. Of course, they, they, they're stupid and they're arrogant. And that's why you end up with this. But uh, I, I thought the two Justins uh, and, and the, the, the woman from, from, I guess she was from Knoxville, 
He said, why do you think I didn't get kicked out? Look at, look at me. I'm white. It was good, too. So it, you're right. But the Democrats don't do very well in Tennessee. It's, it's, it's a tragedy. I don't know how, how we come back. But, boy, I tell you what, on IQ points, we're, we're, we're killing them. We're just killing them. <laughs> well, I like that, but I'd like it even better if we do better in uh, election uh, points. And I guess you think it's not going to make much difference there? I, 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 I hope I'm wrong. But what it, it can make a difference in, in what I'm going to be looking at, and I'll, I'll talk about this, but you don't need to, is in, hopefully, you know, I, I, I've been very big, and this program has been very big on tepid black turnout. Let's just call it what it is, all right? Mm-hmm. It was not very good. And, you know, we got a big test coming up this fall in Mississippi. And Justin Jones is actually a, a graduate student at the Vanderbilt Divinity School, which is a, Wake Forest has one, I think there are like five others around the country, but, right. it's, you know, it's obviously a very good one. And he's very smart and he's very schooled in religious tradition. And boy, do I, would I love to see him. I think we might see him in the Mississippi Delta or see him in Hines County in some other places uh, talking this up because at, at some point when you look at what they did to these guys and you look at the way that race was involved in him, now, the white people can pee in each other's chairs. They don't do anything. And, and they did. Yeah, they did. They did. Right. And, and they were actually protesting the shooting of children, which seems to me to be a, a pretty noble thing to protest. I mean, don't, I, I'm not for shooting children. And I'm very, in fact, I'm very much against it as are they. So I hope we can, I hate to be political here, but I, I, people need to see what's happening in this country and they need to do what the people in Wisconsin did and respond to it through the ballot box. Yeah, I agree. And of course, there was that other terrible shooting in Louisville. Five people were killed. Uh, and uh, I saw something people saying, well, that gun was purchased. Legally. Yes, that's the problem. problem. It was an assault weapon. Assault weapons should be banned. (laughs) And the people who were, there were, you know, some really great citizens were killed. And one person who said, you know, one was a close friend of the governor, but Senator Rick Scott from Florida said, you know, this guy was a good friend of mine. Okay, Senator Scott, he's a good friend of yours. Here's how you can pay homage to him. Ban assault weapons. I don't. I'm not gonna hold my breath, James. Right. Of course, I know the governor quite well. Boy, he's really talented. Let me tell you, when you you know when you talk about the young talent we have in the party, and we talk about Wes Moore and people like that as we should. Man, Andy Brashear is is right at the top. Of course, he lost a couple of friends in there and that guy, Thomas Massey, you know, we're a fucking jerks and out something. But, but what's really, it, it, nothing is funny about this, but anytime that Ted Cruz makes a fucking fool out of himself has got to make you feel good. I, I think like the day before, he, he used banks as an example of the way schools should be. <laughs> should make every school like a bank. He may have a vault and a guard. But James, blah, if you blah, apply blah. that test, we're getting a lot of pleasure because uh, Ted's uh, Ted's making a fool out of himself more than more than once a week. Yeah, it, it's you know you 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 take l- the little pleasures in life, and trust me, that's about all we're getting right now is little pleasures in life. But him making a fool of himself ne- never ne- never ever goes sour. James, I'll tell you who's getting a lot of pleasures in life, and that is Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. ProPublica broke the news that he's accepted millions of dollars worth of free trips 
in uh, private planes and on yachts, lodging, and gifts from a white right-wing Texas billionaire, Harlan Crow, whose hobby uh, is that he loves to collect Hitler and Nazi memorabilia. Now, the Supreme Court has incredibly lax ethics rules. We know that. But this is really sleazy, even by those rules. Thomas and his political right-wing wife, Ginny Thomas, and their fixer, Mark Bayletta, and the Supreme Court nomination fixer, Leonard Leo, hanging out with a rich guy who's obviously affected by court decisions. And uh, Slate's Dahlia Lithwick, who despite Walter Dellinger's urgings, I have never met, but she's really good. And she says, I'm sorry, this is not just an echo ethical violation, Thomas clearly broke the law, except we know nothing will come of it, except a further erosion of any confidence in the Supreme Court. Well, I, I, I couldn't agree more on the, I read a piece, and it was in a sort of mainstream New York, Atlantic, or something like that, and it's, well, a lot of people collect his stuff. He had Stalin memorabilia, and he had this, and maybe the guy, but, but when you have Adolf Hitler's initials embroidered and napkins? I don't know, you know? I mean, I, I understand that, you know, people collect certain things, and uh, but then that, and, and this guy, uh, you know, a guy like this doesn't, like, think that Jenny and Clarence, the only thing is, I, I don't know how much money they spent on the fuel, on, on the boat, or the fuel, on a Bombardier 500 airplane, but I'll I, I tell you, feeding them food for 30 days could break a billionaire with those two. Jesus, so much can they eat? <laughs> anyway. Uh, and I don't know what the added weight on the on the plane and the cost, anything, but it, he definitely had to burn some more fuel. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, James, I'll tell you, just going, going back just for one second to guns, I'll tell you what depresses me. There's a column this week written by... Karen Tumulty, one of my very favorite columnists. And like she that. went back and she and she revisited Uvalde. And you know what? The Republicans paid no price for that. The, the governor, the lieutenant governor, the attorney general all did better in Uvalde last November than they did four years before. Uh, that's just depressing. It's depressing, but, you know, it's the reality of it. If, if your DNA and your sense of resentment if shooting children doesn't move it, man, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe there's not a 30-second ad out there that can do it. Uh, and, I mean, Abbott's behavior in this was just awful and being at a fundraiser and uh, everything. And, you know, brought everybody in and Matthew McConaughey, hats off to him. And, you know, it's depressing because what changes, well, something changes, if anything, it gets worse. Yeah. And I, I think, I think, unfortunately, that we ain't going to be around to see it, but hopefully the next generation can do something. Because right now, uh, you know, I, I I say that, but but the Wisconsin thing, we we, we got to report good news where it is. The Wisconsin thing is really good news. Yep, yep, and, yep. It really you, was. You know, uh, and I'm still a believer that. There's a lot of freaking talent in the Democratic Party. We just got to figure a way to get it out on the field. Yeah, yeah, we do. Okay, we, we aren't going to ignore the good news, I promise you.
Hey, James, our guest is the great essayist and columnist for the New York Times. Some people think the very best, Tom Etzel, always insightful, uh, writes, talks to smart academics and is able to understand the rhythms of American politics uh, as well, if not better than anyone. Hey, Tom, you've written a brilliant piece in Wednesday's New York Times. Republicans move to the hard right, electing extremists, proud boy types from Oregon to Florida. One analyst notes that for the right, violence no longer is a fringe position. I, I, I mean, this is this is frightening. And are there Republicans standing up to this real threat? Uh, I don't see any significant Republican opposition to this. It really uh, seems to flow like uh, water off a duck. And there's some minor, the never Trumpers, the Mitt Romneys, but on the whole, th these things are going on, and they're, uh, they're going on with the acquiescence of the Republican leadership. And going on at the local level much more than is commonly uh, understood. Yeah, I, th I think this, this, the role of people like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers becoming active members of Republic local Republican executive committees, state and local, is becoming increasingly commonplace. Steve Bannon has really been pushing this as a theory for a takeover of the party. And it's very similar to what the Christian coalition did way back in the, in the late 80s, where they took over a whole bunch of Southern Republican parties. The same thing is slowly taking place uh, at the local level uh, from Miami to Oregon. And it's, uh, it, it, uh, there needs to be much, I think what's happened in this is the fact that we've lost so many newspapers, no one covers this stuff anymore. Right. And it goes on under the radar without any notice and suddenly a Republican party like in Clackamas County, Oregon, suddenly the chairman and the vice chairman of the party are members of these extremist groups. And uh, at any rate, it's, it's an ongoing thing and you don't hear any Oregon Republicans complaining about this. Uh, it, it's just a continuing phenomenon with a slow, it's a slow motion kind of revolution taking place. Tom, you put that together with voting restrictions, radical gerrymandering, wiping away the rights of the opposition. It is, as one political scientist told you, turning in to a minority authoritarianism, more like today's Hungary or even some earlier fascist models. Is that an overstatement? Well, I think the idea of a minority authoritarian party is gaining increasing credibility. Uh, you see this in terms of what the Republican Party has been pushing at the state level, where more and more uh, state parties are enacting legislation giving partisan groups, i.e. the state legislature itself, power over election outcomes to decide who were the winners. This is what Trump wanted in 2020, but he couldn't do it because it was illegal, basically. What he wants now is to transfer this crucial power to decide who the winners are and who gets the Electoral College votes to partisan groups who could then overturn uh, the results that, uh, that would appear to be more accurate with another winner. And you, at the same time, have a court case pending before the Supreme Court uh, the independent uh, legislative, I can't remember the exact title of the, of the, the theory, but the theory is to, that state governments 
do have this power, although it's a disputed theory, but given this court, there's no reason to think that they might not, well, might, might not take that view. Well, what should Democrats be doing? One of your experts said the problem with Democrats is they too, uh, you know, too often they just call these extremist names, which they are, but they fail to, to address or understand that there are some real grievances and resentments from rank and file. Are there things Democrats could do better, Tom? Well, it's really a two-pronged question. The, the, they could do a lot better appealing to white working-class voters who are crucial to this Republican takeover. Uh, and that's a whole big uh, strategic and policy-making decision. They could also do much more to highlight what's going on now. I think the Senate, which is what the Democrats have control, could be used much like Republicans in the House are doing, but in the Democratic Senate, they could use it to hold hearings on these phenomena, like the Proud Boys taking place, the denial of abortions to people, to women who are in extreme situations where their fetus is virtually dead. There are all kinds of things that could be done to start pushing these the, the role of what really is minority authoritarianism, which means basically policies that are not supported by the majority, but promoted successfully by the minority, the Democrats could highlight this much more aggressively. Tom, I'm going to turn over to James. But for, for 15 years from now, put, you know, look at your crystal ball. Will this kind of really, really radical extremism likely have run its course, or might it even be more dangerous? Well, I, I think the that Looking at it, it seems to be gaining momentum. If anything, things are getting worse and worse. And what I, what I describe in the column, uh, the whole process has been accelerating. And the institutional breaks that you normally see in a party, the, the pressures to move back to the center, don't seem to be working within the Republican Party. So I don't see this at the moment as a phenomenon that's likely to sort of run its course and run out of gas. At the moment, it seems to be gaining momentum and gaining energy at the same time on the right. The big question is, uh, can the Democrats quash it? And the ultimate way to quash it is to to be, to win elections. To win elections, show yeah. That it's, a, it's a totally losing proposition. James. So, so, Tom, one of the most influential magazine pieces I think probably ever written, I went back and, and reread it, was Hannah Arndt on the, covering the Eichmann trial, and she called it the banality of evil. He looked just like us. You know, but it's probably a guy that, you know, picked his kids up from school or whatever. And these people are everywhere around us, and they're not like Steve Bannon. They don't wear horns. But you don't know how inbred they are in in. In, in, in American culture, American society. And the number of people that have become comfortable with the idea of violence, I think, is, is, is growing every day. Is that your impression? I, I think you're right, but I think it's, I wouldn't want to demonize all these people. There's something going on where basically fundamentally decent people are adopting really bad policies or bad outlooks, and they're tolerating things, people that you wouldn't mind, you know, sharing a, a, a breakfast with or a, a beer with, they're, but they're, they're going off the rails. All right. So you get into my central point. 
So I, 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 one of the people I called was, was a, a woman named Kirschfield, I think, something like that. And she said, look, th this is a, 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 a Republican phenomenon, but, of course, we have to have this. The Democrats said, ball too, because maybe we didn't, you know, maybe free trade, you know, screwed their lives, or maybe they don't, don't like, you know, integration, or they don't like gay people or something. That is not a freaking excuse for violence. That's an excuse to vote against someone. And when smart people labs in and say, yeah, they're violent, and, you know, they, 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 they ride at the Capitol. But you, you got to admit, Jim, you know, a lot of these people feel divorced from the, the, the cultural superiority of the Democratic Party. Well, okay, I'll buy that. That doesn't give you the freaking right to shoot somebody or, 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 or beat a, a police officer over the head with a tattoo. And I just think we are too – just see it. Every time I read something, so I knew this. I knew we were going to come here. Oh, well, yeah, but, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's part of our fault. It may be our fault that they vote against us, but that, that doesn't that – we, we can't let them off and say, well, you've, you've got screwed. Your income hadn't gone up. Uh, you're living lives of despair and deaths of despair, so therefore go out and fucking shoot a black person. Doesn't make sense. I mean, that's, that's my general view. I, I don't disagree with you. The, the issue is how do you get that message to the people who do just what you describe, who, who beat the cop over the head with a fire hydrant right. or whatever it is. They, uh, and they are, the, I don't know how you get those people back to their fundamental decency, or maybe they don't, they, maybe they've lost their decency. It, it is not my fault that they are violent, okay? It might be mostly mine. I mean, the collective democratic fault. It, it made that certainly policies that, that it embraced, they felt like hasn't gone for them. I don't know, but they offered a freaking minimum wage and Medicare and Medicaid and, you know, everything else. But, but, but all, all I'm saying is it, it, there has to be a way that we can resolve agree that we can resolve political conflict without violence and really very little, if anything, can justify violence. That's my general view. I, no argument, okay. but uh, it, it doesn't resolve how you get these people off their violent kick. Uh, you know, and, I, 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 uh, I know it's not, you're saying it's right. not your responsibility right. to do that. It's not, but... It's not theirs. They're not taking that responsibility. Well, maybe they're just shitty-ass racist people. Have we just thought about that? That, that? that might be one explanation? I think that is an explanation for maybe 35 40%, maybe even 50% of what's going on. But there's some... I, I, I spent a lot of time talking to voters going around and to places where you see a lot of this now, these super-Trump precincts. And th th these are not, on the whole, evil, racist people. They, there's something gone wrong, and it's come out in an expression that is way off the, 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 the it's just way out in line. But I, to, if, I think just, if you want to say they're all racist, fine. I, I then what do we do? I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm turning back out because I, 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 maybe I'm just not being clear. I don't say they don't have a grievance. I don't say they don't have, I don't say that, that black people don't have a grievance or, or, or Native Americans don't have a grievance. 
We would not say you can execute, you can, you, can, your grievance should manifest itself with violence. And, and well, that's so where you got we got so freaking much liberal guilt here. Well, maybe we didn't do this. And I, by the way, I know a lot of these people. I hate to say this, but I think some of them might even be in my close to me. And they, they, they look like you and I. They go to church on Sunday. If you're sick, they'll bring a casserole to you. They'll drive you to the to the doctor. All right. That's what that's what the banality of it. But when you when you accept violence, you you you. You, you've crossed something here, and you, you, you don't deserve sympathy, and you, 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 you're just a bad person. I'm sorry. You may have touched on something there that this idea of liberal guilt, I think, has turned the Democratic Party and a large wing of the Democratic Party into kind of a, a, a lost toughness and the willingness to take on what's going on here. I think people push, and when, when they don't get pushed back, they push harder, and that's what's taking place on the right. And the the uh, the left doesn't that doesn't push back. I agree, and it, you can't tolerate violence, uh, but it means being a lot tougher and more aggressive than what you've seen uh, from the Democratic side. I think if the Democratic Party itself was better equipped to stand up and fight. These people would back off, and they would make it get, make them have to have second thoughts. Before I turn it over to Al, because I've been wondering yeah, about just, it. Uh, 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 let me a couple of things. How central is race to this uh, um, to these right wing extremists? It's no question that race is what started the whole thing, and race now intermixes with every other issue. It, it, race and taxes, race and regulation race and immigration, uh, all of them compound each other. If anything, as I say, it, that, that whole process began really in the, in the 64 Civil Rights Act, which turned the Democratic Party into a liberal party and the Republican Party into a conservative party. But that since then, over those past, over the next 60 years, uh, these race has intersected with virtually every other major controversial issue yeah and it, you can't you can't escape race it's a bit race is a big issue and if, if, if anything it seems to get bigger yeah it does um and really shara and others and i think you've written about this too so the democrats have have focused too much on cultural issues and lost the white working class votes on the other hand, the abortion issue is a, particularly with a pill now, is a huge winning issue. I, I guess the answer is that they have to more artfully walk and chew gum at the same time and not choose one over the other. Well, the, the, the white working class, I, I think the Democratic Party is supposed, in theory, is the party of the working class, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever. Losing the white working class has really undermined the Democratic Party's credibility as the advocate of the working man and woman. And that's a that's an ongoing problem. And it makes it very hard for the party to to uh, claim its central what had been its central uh, mantle. Yeah. Uh, 
and uh, we could that that's a whole new dis- different discussion well you you said earlier the only way to stop this is is at the ballot box you know uh, democrats in the whole say 2022 was a really good election historically we did much better than uh, in the past I, I i i i'm not sure of that uh, it seems to me if you look at what they were running against a party that uh, denied an, a, a presidential election a party that countenanced a violent mob attacking the capitol uh, a party that countenanced some of these violent extremists that you're talking about you know that should have been the opportunity to really deal them a big blow and it didn't happen and there's little indication it's going to happen in 2024 tom well, the reality is that uh, we now have such a polarized electorate that every, each party goes into every election with at least 45% of the vote locked in. So you're talking about a tiny margin so that winning big or, winning or losing big just doesn't happen. It hasn't happened for almost two decades where you've had a landslide election, maybe more than that. Yeah. Uh, and so you don't, uh, elections have, are no longer referenda they are assertions of your partisanship as opposed to a judgment by voters that, that elected officials are good or bad. Uh, and that makes it very hard uh, to, to basically, it, if the Republicans are, and I agree, as bad as you describe, in theory, the electorate would rise up against them. But here we, uh, you know, Donald Trump looks like he's going to be the nominee in 2024. I think he's going to get at least 45% of the vote. I think he's going to probably lose, but he's probably going to get 45% of the vote. There's this, or maybe even 48%. So it's a, a uh, it's a, we have a new animal at, at, uh, in politics these well, days. Well, you've been the tiebreaker because James and I have disagreed. Uh, where, you know, James has now said he thinks it's likely Trump will be the nominee. I, I'm not quite sure what will happen, but I think he, it won't be. But you are much closer to James's position, I gather. Uh, my theory is that bad things are likely. Well, of course, that could be someone other than Trump, too. That's what I mean. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, James. So, Tom, I think we can start with a general statement on everything. Violence is not an answer to grievance. All right. And, I, and I'm, I'm very, you know, somebody says, well, guy hijacked, uh, carjacked. And so we got to understand. He, he grew up in poverty. OK, I understand that. But that's not a violence is not should not manifest itself in grievance. And we cannot excuse, you know, advocating violence for somebody's perceived grievance. Or maybe it's a real grievance, but everybody's got a grievance somewhere. And I just think that some people go out of their way and say, well, you got to understand. Yeah, I know they have a lot of things happening. Their lives didn't turn out right. But that's just a general statement that I would make. And I would make it to the people who excuse crime based on, on, on a, a legitimate grievance that someone has. And we provide them with shitty schools and they didn't have a support system and blah, blah, blah. That doesn't excuse violence. And neither does this. But... Before I let you go, because one thing that's just annoying at me, and I, I hear all this two America stuff. We got white America and black America and coastal America and interior America. And we get to, but what really strikes me that we have two Americas is 
is age. I mean, more or less people married, I mean, people born after 1980 and people born before 1980. And they're different demographically, they're different attitudinally, they're different on, on a lot of, lot of different levels. And I, I think that also drives some, some of this. I mean, I can't tell you a number of times people come in from focus groups and say, you know, they, grandkids uh, come home from college and they got this stuff. And there's, there's real generational tension in this country, I think. Uh, no argument. Well, I, I think everybody, everybody out there ought to read Tom Etzel's piece uh, in the uh, New York Times uh, Wednesday, the essay. Uh, it's frightening. Uh, it's, you're not going to feel better after you read it, but you're going you're gonna to know a lot more what you're yeah, frightened no. about. So it's anyway, to feel good about. Tom Etzel, thank you so much for being with us. You bet. Thank you, guys. Good to be with you. Hey, James, our guest is Michael Fanone, a brave metropolitan police officer who self-deployed to help the Capitol Police, one of those brave Capitol Police on January the 6th. He actually saw exactly what happened and has a book out called Holding the Line. The insurrectionist that day uh, brutally beat him with a pipe, threatened him with his own gun. He suffered a heart attack and a brain injury, and he's now telling the whole story. Uh, Michael, I cannot tell you uh, how much we admire your courage. Uh, some thousand people have been charged with January the 6th, almost half pled or convicted. I think there are 250 or so incarcerated. Is justice being served? Uh, I, I mean, I guess in some respects, yes. You know, the people that went to the Capitol that committed crimes on January 6th, they're being held to account the thousand plus individuals that you just mentioned uh, who committed a variety of different crimes, some very serious, uh, some less serious, but all part of uh, an attempt to subvert our democracy, um, to prevent Congress from certifying a free and fair election uh, and doing so by force. Um, that being said, the, the individuals, the former president um, and those in his inner circle who are responsible for inspiring uh, those Americans to go to the Capitol and commit acts of violence uh, have not yet been held to account. You were a Trump voter in 2016. Would you, do you think Trump should be prosecuted for what happened that day of infamy? Absolutely. I mean, if you had asked me on January 7th, 2021, um, if I felt like Donald Trump was morally and ethically responsible for what happened to me and the 140 other MPD officers and U.S. Capitol Police officers that were injured, I would have told you, hell yes. Um, but now, having sat through um, what I feel like was a very thorough investigation conducted uh, by the House Select Committee, um, I believe that Donald Trump uh, bears criminal culpability, uh, along with you know many of his supporters, uh, enablers, uh, bear criminal culpability for what happened that day. Yeah, and this has been 
really uh, irrationally politicized when you and your colleagues were honored by the House of Representatives. The only Republicans who showed up in the chamber were Liz Cheney and her dad. Now, last week or two weeks ago, Marjorie Taylor Greene visited the D.C. jail to complain that the insurrectionists weren't being treated nicely enough. How did that affect you? Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, it all started when um, Representative, um, I forget his name, from, uh, from Georgia, uh, characterized the day as a, uh, a regular tourist day at the Capitol. Right. right. Um, I mean, that's when the insanity, for me at least, with regards to January 6th started. Uh, so now, I, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is, is batshit crazy. Um, that's type of, you know, behavior that I've come to expect, and I think many Americans have come to expect uh, from her. Um, but it is, you know, it's outrageous. Um, it's disappointing to see a uh, member of a political party that claims to support law enforcement um, show up to... DC jail. And I think it's important for your viewers to, to understand the only people that are still incarcerated in DC jail, and there's about two dozen of them, are there because they committed acts of violence against police officers. They're not there for criminal trespass. Uh, they're not there for, you know, destruction of property. They're there because they beat the shit out of cops. Um, and so, you know, let's understand what Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and her uh, cohorts that went there um, to, you know, investigate the atrocities being committed against these uh, upstanding patriotic citizens. Uh, the reality is these are people that uh, did violence against police officers. Um, yeah, the law, the law and order uh, party. You, you, you also said that Kevin McCarthy, and I'm, and I'm quoting you now, in public, he's praised the police, but behind closed doors, he doesn't really give a shit. Elaborate. Yeah, no, I mean, it, <laughs> this isn't the, uh, the only example of uh, political pandering that exists, and on both sides of the political aisle, but, you know, I've dealt with it mostly from the Republicans in that, you know, they claim to be supportive of law enforcement, and yet they didn't do anything to help law enforcement. Uh, and in, in fact, you know, many of the, you know, policies and laws, I guess, that, that they have been uh, supportive are, are actually um, problematic for police in this country um, and, and even detrimental to, uh, to us accomplishing the job that, um, that we need to do. James, so, so Michael, let us take the January 6th forward. Tell us a little bit about your life and what kind of threats that you have been under as a result of you literally having a heart attack and getting beaten to try to save the United States. Have you gotten a lot of threats from, from different people online or your family, your children, I saw where your daughter helped you get get here today what's been that reaction from those people i mean I, I received quite a few threats um the they really started uh i i would say the most significant threats began just after i testified before congress um and i took my testimony seriously i, I felt as though it was an extension of my service not only on january 6th but in the two decades i spent as a dc police officer 
you know, I'm a cop. My job is to, uh, you know, apprehend the bad guy uh, and then appear in court and testify about my experiences truthfully, which is exactly what I did um, before the select committee. Um, afterwards, I was, you know, characterized by uh, members of the, you know, right-wing entertainment media, people like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram. And I understand that for what it is, and, and I don't really take, take it personally. Um, you know, I spent two decades as a cop tangling with some of the most uh, expensive uh, defense attorneys money can buy. So I understand theatrics and courtroom theatrics, but there were people, you know, that listened to um, Tucker and, and Laura uh, talk about me and, and talk about the events of that day and, it, and then mirror that language in their threats against my life and, and that of my family members. Um, and so much so that it inspired some to visit, you know, my father's house, uh, my ex-wife's house. Uh, and those threats continue to this day. Um, and it's unfortunate, you know, listen, I understand that uh, typically when you're investigating a threat against someone's life, there has to be an overt action and the threat has to be specific. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not um, traumatic uh, to have someone out there who takes the time to pick up the phone, uh, find my phone number, and call me and tell me that they wish, uh, you know, death upon me and, and my children is, uh, it's difficult to deal with. Uh, and it happens frequently. So let's talk, you had a heart attack on, on January 6th, is, is that correct? Yes. And did your cardiologist said that that, that it was stress induced by that by those events? Is that was that the diagnosis that you got? Yeah. So when I was uh, driven to the emergency room, um, and I was there, they uh, they told me that I had had a spike in my troponin levels, which I guess is what they you know use to determine whether or not you've had some type of a cardiac event. And it was later uh, from you know speaking with my cardiologist that uh, they, you know, he felt as though based on my age and, and uh, the fact that I'm, you know, in good physical condition. Uh, yeah, that he I, know you, I know you, you're in good physical condition. Go ahead. The, um, the, I, I was struck with a taser device on my neck um, somewhere between, you know, five or, or seven times. Um, and as a result of that, you know, electroshock, uh, as well as the assault, uh, against me, uh, they believe that um, that that's what accounted for the uh, traumatic brain injury as well as the uh, heart attack. So, are, are you feeling okay today? I mean, physically, are, are you are you recovered? Yeah, no. I mean, I'm fortunate. Uh, physically, I, I made a full recovery, uh, at least in my mind. Um, you know that, and again, like. I had two decades in law enforcement to fall back on when it came to dealing with the physical violence that I experienced on January 6th. I mean, it was not my first rodeo. I never experienced anything like that, uh, but it's not the first time I got punched in the face. Um, what was the most difficult was dealing with the indifference from lawmakers, uh, the indifference from my fellow Americans, uh, from the greater law enforcement community at large, and um, 
you know, and then this attempt to whitewash what happened that day. Um, you know, you've got a part, you know, a portion of the Republican Party that just wants to sell you some bullshit that it was Antifa or that, um, yeah, it was some false flag operation that was put forth by Nancy Pelosi, the FBI, and fucking space aliens. Um, and then you've got a lot of other Republicans that just want to compare it to the summertime riots, which, you know, listen, a lot of cops got injured during that as well. Uh, but at no point in time did I ever feel as though uh, democracy and this government were at risk by people breaking into CVSs and uh, throwing, you know, piss-filled bottles at police officers. That's just been um, difficult to deal with and, uh, and still continues to this day. Well, I, I thank you so much. Like I said, you and I have had a couple of times to interact with each other. And I thank you, I thank you so much for speaking, Howard. I think you're a, a, a person of tremendous courage. And I, I, I know your children look at you that way, and I hope you continue your voice because I think it's an, an important voice, and I think political violence is, is the, you know, we had Tom Etzelon today, and I, political violence is a, is, a, is a very troubling thing, and you were the victim of political violence, and you have an important voice against it. So thank you so much, Michael. Yeah, you do. And, and Michael, several times we mentioned in this show, there's still... Uh, tragically, are people who think, well, there were mainly peaceful protesters, maybe a few bad apples. I have, have on multiple occasions, recommended everybody who has any questions should, should watch an HBO special, Four Hours at the Capitol. It was a war against an angry, violent mob that wanted to overturn democracy, and it's captured in that HBO special. Uh, and it was only through the courage of people like you, Michael, that it was prevented. So thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, now for the outrage of the week. Um, in North Carolina, Democratic State Rep. Tricia Cotham suddenly switched parties. Now, that's that unusual in some states. James, in your home state of Louisiana, uh, it, it happens with some frequency. But in a heavily polarized Tar Heel state, it really is rare. Maybe it was to protect her seat as Republicans will control redistricting. But she gave the GOP a super majority in that state house, which can, can override any veto of Governor Cooper. Now, that takes us to abortion. Less than 10 weeks earlier, Rep. Cotham co-sponsored a bill that would codify abortion rights. Years earlier, she gave an impassioned personal speech on the floor against abortion restrictions, knowing how she once ended a life-threatening pregnancy. And I, and I quote her, quote, My womb and my uterus is not up for your grab, legislators. You don't hold shares in my body, end quote. Pretty soon, Republicans are expected to bring up a very stringent anti-abortion measure, which probably could only override a Cooper veto with Tricia Cotham's support. If so... If she supports that, if she supports the anti-abortion thing, 10 weeks after her earlier statement, some investigative reporter needs to find out what she got for this flip-flop on what she said was a moral issue. Well, I suspect what she got, and I don't know it to a certainty, but if I were looking, I would think that some money changed hands. That'd be the first place I'd look. Mm -hmm. This is... 
this thing, there's something smells in Denmark here, and it's not cheese. And in Raleigh, you're right. No, no. I promise you. The, uh, you know, that's as good. I mean, there's so many things to be outraged about. I, I, I guess the thing that I'm most outraged about, and, and even more than Tennessee, is this thing in Texas where a jury deliberated 17 hours. A jury, 12 people deliberated 17 hours, came to a verdict, and now Greg Abbott, at the, in, to, to, to simplify the case, a guy ran into some protesters or whatever, and they put on a, a vigorous defense, jury weighed the defense and didn't buy it. And this 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 is sickening and i i hate to say this but but people seem to be getting increasingly comfortable with a race war in this country and i yeah. mean that and i i know that's a controversial thing to say and i don't think everybody is that way i don't think a majority of the people are that way but it sure does look like some people in high places are are pretty comfortable with some version of a race war which by the way i'm decidedly uncomfortable with them Many different fronts. Uh, it's just it, it's it's really you know the show having having Tom on is, is is important and somebody's got to raise the alarm here. Well, you're right, James. And this was a a a, a white man who had earlier texted out. He was really upset with Black Lives Matters protesters and said, "I might have to kill somebody." Uh, and then when he did, uh, he claimed it was in self-defense. The jury said no, it wasn't. And Governor Abbott decided to pardon him after getting right. pressure from Tucker Carlson. I, you know, I'd love for the governor to answer a question, which he couldn't do, honestly, I'm sure. If it were, the shoe was on the other foot, if there were, say, a Trump rally and a black man drove into the crowd and went <laughs> and thought he was and then killed one of the Trump supporters. Do you think, do you think, and under any circumstances that Governor Abbott would have considered a pardon, James? No. I mean, of course, it's a ridiculous we know that. Question, but it's, the, the important thing here is the system worked. He had a defense. It presented a vigorous defense. The jury took its obligation really seriously to, to the point to deliberate for 17 freaking hours. And then he's good, you know, he he can't pardon directly in Texas because of Pa Ferguson and Ma Ferguson were people selling pardons back then, but he controls the pardon pro board. I suspect they will. But this, this is all, people are getting, some people are getting increasingly comfortable with a race war. And this is what a race war, it's not a race war, this is what a race battle looks like. Yeah. And, you know, what, what, scares me you know if i was a a, a black person i'd be a little bit like well fuck this they're not going to protect me so maybe i need to go on the offensive that's how this shit starts and right. you know i don't agree with the logic but but kind of understand how, how you'd come from that i mean it's it's it, it really really is bad and they're not going to stop here they're just going to keep going they're just going to keep going and th th this this was an unbelievable thing. And, and they talk about the rule of law. And they talk about cracking down on violence. What law and order. Do right. You can tell I'm particularly upset about this, but we've got a problem. Okay, James, and now for the questions from our terrific listeners. They are really smart. Lawrence in Santa Barbara, 
says, he's taking you on, James. He, he says Biden is the best president of his lifetime. You know, Eisenhower forward. Is age the only prejudice why he shouldn't be reelected? And what would a second Biden term look like in your estimation? It's all age, 100%. He deserves, by any criteria, of, of deserves reelection or does, based on his record, of course he does. But but understand, it's another poll. Two polls come out. 65% of people don't want him to do this. And I, 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 you, you're right. You know, I, we could rattle off more people employed any other time in the last 50 years, more people in health insurance, maybe any other time in American history. Uh, inflation is... You know, this something drives me crazy with the press. You, you know, they always got to say, well, it looks good, but you got to go a little bit beneath. No, it's actually pretty good. And uh, see, you have all of this. And, but yes, but for age, I mean, it's like saying Babe Ruth shouldn't have retired or, or Henry Aaron. I don't know. You name it. In, in, Age is a detriment to everything, and I hate to say this, but we're older people. But yes, the, the answer to your question, my friend, out in Santa Barbara, where by the way, I'm going to be uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks in Las Olivas in, in Santa Barbara County, it's a stunning part of the world. Uh, you're right. Age is my, my it's it's 100% my, my reluctance, for, my, my belief that Biden should really think hard about whether he wants re-election or not. Well, I agree with James. So, Lawrence, you've heard us out on this. Write back and tell us whether we've persuaded you at all, because we agree. He has been. If he got out, he would be the best one-term president in the history of the country. Most two-term presidents. That is not a small achievement. And I'll tell you what else would happen. Those Jim Jordan and Comer and all those witch hunt hearings on the Hill on on Hunter Biden and on his daughter, uh, they'd come to a screeching halt and save him a lot of personal anguish. There's nothing going to come of this. And the one thing, the one answer on Hunter Biden is, do you know who the U.S. attorney is in Delaware? Who was he appointed by, James? By Donald Trump and was kept in there. And, and has been told he has a he can conduct his investigation. Okay, yeah. you know, but we get in the weeds of Hunter's laptop and did he use drugs and whatever else. Well, okay, well, who's covering anything up? You only got the entire power of the federal government behind you. I mean, there's just one simple thing we should say, and that's it. Yeah. Excuse me. If you can tell me that, we can we, we can resolve this pretty quickly. Yeah, I agree. Tommy in Marietta, Georgia. It's a good question. He asked right. me. I uh, said, Al, the victim's family's consent. Is there anything preventing the news media from broadcasting unredacted images of people shot by an AR-15? I'm thinking people can see what an a- what AR-15s do to a person's body, especially a child's body. That may bring some more pressure on politicians. Tommy, I agree with you. I don't think I would have uh, a few years ago. The Washington Post did a simulation of it, I believe, several weeks ago that was just gruesome. Uh, but I, I agree. I, I mean, something has to be done. People kind of, they, they, they just move on. They, they shut their eyes to this. But show what it does. Show what it did to that little seven-year-old kid uh, in Nashville. Um, I, 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 I think you have a very good point, Tommy. You know, when I had uh, 
Mortis Stonem Douglas, I try not to think about it. I was, I was teaching at LSU, and I called ROTC and said, can you give somebody to bring up AR-15 in, in my class? And I, you know, plug up the thing, you know, empty the magazine. Fucking university had a conniption, and you, could, you couldn't do it to put it back. Because I wanted people to hold one of these things in your hand, just so you know what you're talking about. Just pass it around. Right, and see what it is. And, and I, 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 I will repeat this to the point of no, we actually banned them from 1994 to 2004, and there were hardly any mass shootings. All right, but uh, they came back. It was one of the most horrific. Banning these these assault weapons one of the best policy decisions we've ever made as a country, and and not in. Extinguishing the ban is uh, not renewing it is one of the worst, yeah. and we're paying for it every fucking day, every day. But I, I, I re- so I had a one of my kids was a, getting ready to be commissioned, and his dad was a retired army colonel. He was actually on the Fort Leesville police. He came and did a, a video demonstration of what it mm-hmm. was and how to clean an AR-15. But until you pick one of these fucking things up, go to a gun store and just say you want to look at one and put it in your hand. Ask yourself, what's that good for? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're not, you know, you're... It's you know, excellent you're not, for shooting eight-year-olds, let me you tell you. Are, you. Yes, and you're not bagging Bambi with an AR-15. No. Uh, you're just killing no. killing no. kids. No. Anyway, Andrew in Duval County, Florida, says, looking at 2024 and beyond, should national Democrats ignore Florida completely? Ooh. Would it be wiser for Democrats to leave Florida in the dust and focusing on instead on states like Georgia, Arizona, and possibly North Carolina while cementing their 2020 wins in the Midwest blue wall? Man, what, what, a, what a wheelhouse question because I was on the phone a lot yesterday and and I'm not I'm I'm not going to kid you that this it was a terrible outcome in 2022 in Florida. Uh, I don't want to go begin debate the reasons. It wasn't in in, in 2018. I think Bill Nelson lost by like under 10,000 votes. The reason that I think we should really work hard to get a candidate in Florida is is. You know, who knows? Things change. I'm not being a... But Rick Scott is up for re-election. And what do we know about Rick Scott? He's the poster boy for raising taxes on working people like you would not believe, all right? Here's the poster boy for sunsetting Social Security and Medicare. And if I were... If a donor, and this happens to me quite often, well, James, why should I send money to Florida? Because... We only have a according to five thirty eight of I don't know whoever we got only got an eighteen percent chance of winning, but yet that's where you run a strong campaign, and you actually make them pay for Rick Scott. Rick Scott is an albatross around them if we leverage it and exploit it. So that's you know I, I, if we do it good enough, who knows? We may win. We got to think this out. We got to get a good candidate, and we got to go right after Rick Scott and put him wrap him around the whole goddamn Republican Party. Well, James, I hope you're right. There was an awful good candidate last time in Val Demings, uh, and, you know, maybe she could run again. But I'll tell you this. If I were were a a Democratic presidential candidate in 2024, and I wanted to put together my, you know, my target of 320 electoral votes, Florida wouldn't be there. 
You know, Florida wouldn't be there. Ohio wouldn't be there. Iowa wouldn't be there. Uh, and, uh, you know, they would be the bonus if there's going to be an unexpected, uh, decisive victory. But, you know, I, I just, again, they're better yeah, targets. We're in Florida, we're in everything. But, but, but all I'm saying is Rick Scott is so much more odious to American public opinion than, than AOC or, or, or anybody else could possibly be. And we cannot let him have a sleepy reelection. Yeah. We have to take it to him and take it to him on the – and by the way, Florida's a state that passed almost two to one, giving him felons the right to vote, and raising the minimum wage to $15. And then they sandbagged it. The Florida legislature did. So well, I don't understand that, but, but yeah. of course they do. But, but, but at any rate, I, I, I don't – I think they – you know, there's probably less than a moderate chance that you have a chance to win that Senate seat, but there's a 100% chance you can make them pay. And sometimes mm-hmm. in politics, you got to do that. Pete, in Raleigh, North Carolina, my son lived in Raleigh for almost three years, just left last weekend. Uh, Pete says, I see a huge disconnect between Republicans like Larry Hogan, Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski, and extremists like Kevin McCarthy and Josh Hawley. Pete wants to know, is there any hope that rational Republicans will regain control of the party so both sides can start working on reasonable compromises? Pete, in a word, no. No. Uh, I, I think... They're trying to run what they call reasonable Republicans, like this guy McCormick in Pennsylvania, who, who by my lights isn't very reasonable, uh, and he may get beaten by you know one of the even craziers. So well, I, I know. Yeah, so I think it's going to take this party a long time. I think the only thing that is going to change it is some kind of uh, really big electoral defeat, and uh, that's what happened after Goldwater. And uh, that's what happened after Watergate. And James, sadly, I don't see that in the horizon. Yeah, I, the, the Republican Party is not looking for Larry Hogan, okay? Mm-hmm. They, they, in fact, they're looking for just the opposite. Look, look at what they nominated for governor. I, I mean, there is no interest in that. They, 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 I'm, I'm not saying they're not a handful of good Republicans because that's— in people's lifetime search, they're just, they're not going to win anything. No one wants them. The only people that want them is people who want to, like, feel good about themselves. They're not out there, you know. Yeah, you can say Chris Sununu is not a bad guy, or Larry Hogan, maybe you could, you know, maybe say Chris, but Mitt Romney, they're, they're not interested in them at all. Yeah. They have no interest yeah. in them. Unfortunately, you're right. James in Carrollton, Illinois. You know where Carrollton, Illinois is? Is that anywhere near Mary's hometown? I don't know. Well, Mary's from South Side of Chicago, so I, 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 it sounds like a Chicago suburb, but I don't know that. Well, we can check. But anyway, James, James is a conservative Republican, uh, but he says he loves our podcast, even while he disagrees with us most of the time. Right. Uh, okay. He's heard your take on the budget situation, and I hear all the time from Democrats saying, what are you going to cut? Uh, to be sure, he says, in a perfect world, everyone would want everything considered a priority. The question to you, James, is the reciprocal. How are Democrats, he asks, going to fund Biden's budget? We are many trillions of dollars in debt, and no one seems to care. A, a good point, but Biden has put up a budget, right? Mm-hmm. Where is your budget? It, 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 understand that that. You, 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 the the Constitution, and, and I, I appreciate that you like the show. Uh, I appreciate that we have a, a, a somewhat of a difference of opinion. I actually kind of think we're in a lot of debt myself, but but be that as it may, 
give us your budget. The, 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 the Constitution mandates that spending start begin in the House. Where is it? Right? So you, you, Biden's there. You say it doesn't pay for things. It, 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 it explodes the debt even more. By the way, uh, David Jolly, the former Republican congressman from Florida, and I, I saw him, and he's a, some, oh, he's a former congressman. I don't know if he's a, probably still a Republican, but I don't know. But he's Trump, he's a never Trumper, is a scholar on the federal budget. I asked him about it, and he lit up. Down 25% of the entire accumulated debt of the United States is like 31 million, 32 million, was acquired during the four years that Donald Trump was president. Now, figure the country started in, I think, what was it, probably 1789? Through today. Around then. Around then. So you have four years of that puts 25% of the total debt we have. And, you know, the president submitted a budget. You know, everybody, you've covered budgets for 50 years. The first opening graph is always it's debt on arrival. Okay. Right, but right. it's there. Okay. It's there. They don't have yeah. one. They don't have one. So you can't even be dead if you never were born. They have not tried. And I... It, if you're going to see me on television from here forward, say, excuse me, where's your budget? You, you, you want to pivot to kitchen table issues and, you know, you know, you, you know these prosecutions or distractions, good, produce your budget. Produce your budget. Yep. That's all I want to see. Don't hold Fair your enough. breath, James. Don't hold your breath. Mary Ann in Glen Ridge, New Jersey, who, by the way, has been a fan of yours since the war room and been, oh, a fan wow. of, been a fan of mine since the old Washington Week in Review. Mary Ann, you must have been a, been a, a, a toddler back then. Uh, <laughs> but she said, perhaps you could hear me screaming in northern New Jersey at the notion that we apparently raised, we did, of a presidential pardon for the man who was behind a merry band of insurrectionists who invaded the Capitol. Do you really think a pardon would help heal the nation? Do you think Ford's pardon of Nixon helped our democracy? Let me take that, uh, Marianne. What we said was it would be a hard call if you could get Trump to A, acknowledge guilt, B, agree to a fine, C, promise never to run for office again, and D, be able to persuade local district attorneys uh, to go along with those terms. Um, I think that's a very hard call. Uh, my inclination would be to say, uh, take, hold my nose and take the deal. And yeah, I think in retrospect, I, I wish Ford would have gotten more of an admission of guilt from Nixon, uh, but I do. I think it helped us move on. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to please you, but um, uh, you know, I hope I at least explain my position on this, James. Yeah, I, man, I appreciate where you're coming from. I, I, my guess is this is an entirely hypothetical yeah. situation that's never going to happen. But I, I am. I, I, we, we try to do is put provocative things out there to say, what would you do if this happened? And uh, I, I, I could understand uh, your reluctance to to go along with something like this, and it probably won't happen. But it's it's a it, it's a good provokes a good conversation. Yeah, it does. James, finally, Mary and Ivan's Utah. We haven't heard from anyone in Utah in a in a. Well, good. In a long... yeah, you know, I've, I've been out there a bunch of times. Oh. But that's one of the nicest people. Salt Lake City, I don't know where Ivan is, but 
Salt Lake City is a hell of an interesting place. You know, not to mention, you know, that they have some of the best mountains you can you can anywhere in Utah. But I'm, oh, I'm a very pro Utah listen, guy. Listen, my uh, assistant, when she's not working on her full time job, is the very talented and, and uh, attractive Adrian Carter, who is from Utah. And I got to tell you, she is a gem. So, Mary, we're oh. we're very big on Utah. You know, a few episodes ago, James, you mentioned the commission on presidential debates was no longer relevant and should be ended. Why? And would you replace it with something else? Don't you think there needs to be a platform, Mary asked, where all Americans can see two candidates on stage live debating each other? How else are we to judge the difference? Well, well I'll give you a, 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 a number of reasons. The first thing is, it's all kind of appointed. And you had Frank Ferencoff, who, who was there, and we're trying to get a debate. And of course, he has one. Because he, you know, I, I know I, he's a lobbyist for the, the gaming or whatever, the gambling. I call it gambling. They call it gaming. And then they were swapping stuff back and forth. I, I think you need to have debates. I, I just think the commission, it, 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 it's totally dictated by the campaigns. And, and the truth of that is we really don't have debates. We have the equivalent of joint press conferences. I, you know, when this subject governs hot as we approach election year, we should get like Sidney Blumenthal on here to talk about what the Lincoln-Douglas debates were. They were like two hours of air. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. I, I, I just think that this has just become like everything else, a, a, a place for lobbyists to exercise influence and, to, and we, we need to figure out a better way to do yeah, this. And Mary- I'm, I'm all for yeah, and James, to, to buttress your point, in, in virtually every gubernatorial and Senate contest, and many House contests last fall, there there were debates, and there were no commissions. Uh, they're right. just staged. I, I agree. I think it's outlived any usefulness it had, and it's time to move on. Yeah, I, I think the destination is, is noble. I, I, I you know, think we need a different vehicle to get there. All right, keep those questions coming in. They are so good. And if we didn't get to yours this week, we'll get to it next week. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors, Lomi and Hold On Bags in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room and Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.